0: Good morning. It's good to be together again. Um, I'm happy to be uh, up here sharing uh, from the book of Jude this morning. So if you remember, a few weeks ago we started our series in the book of Jude, and I preached on just the first two verses. Uh, And if you remember, uh, Jude begins his letter by addressing uh, the readers as uh, those who are called... Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. As we continue through uh, the middle section of this of this book, uh, verses three to sixteen, it's important to keep in mind that the entirety of of this letter, including the section we're we'll reading today, uh, occurs within the context of this introduction to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And so, although Uh, This passage that we're studying today is a bit more stern, um, maybe not as happy to read about as uh, called, beloved, and kept. Um, It's just so important to keep in mind that these identities shape the framework of this letter, and I pray that you find hope and comfort uh, as we study this passage this morning. Uh, I know we've just prayed, but would you please just pray with me one more time? Father God, your word is perfect, it is holy, it is uh, always beneficial, it is always um, good for us to hear. And so, Lord, even in passages like this one that we're about to read that are more stern, uh, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, shine through these words, Lord, that you would be glorified, that your gospel would be made clear, and that we would put our hope once once again in your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Let's begin reading. Verses three and four. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Like I said, the entirety of this letter occurs within the context of his introduction. And so right there, verse 3, the first word we see is beloved. If you're a Christian, you are in Christ and you are beloved by him. Do not forget that as we read through. Our identity does not change. Called, beloved, and kept. And in verse 3, we see Jude introduce his purpose, his, his reason for writing this letter. He writes, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith, He's eager to write to them about the common salvation, the shared uh, gift that they have in in the grace of God uh, being manifest in their lives, and yet uh, he finds it necessary to address something that's more pressing, the need for the church to contend for the faith, or in other words, to stand for truth. The big idea of Jude 3 to 16 is that it is essential that we stand for truth. It is essential that we stand for truth, and so... I'd like to take a minute to break apart that phrase that he has in verse 3, to contend for the faith. It's the central hub of this entire letter, and so it's important that we are all on the same page um, for what it means. So the word contend here has an athletic or maybe a competitive connotation to it. Uh, Other places in the New Testament, the same word is translated as fight or as struggle. Fight for the faith. And the word faith here carries with it, in this context, this meaning not only of, of belief, but also of, of teaching and of doctrine. And so Jude isn't just telling people to don't stop believing. He's telling them to fight for the truth that has been given to them, that has been passed down through the apostolic teaching that they've received, that we now have in the form of the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. He's, stel- he's telling them to stand up for what they know is true, the gospel the truth that we have in our Bible. So why? Why does, why does Jude find it necessary to, to write to the church about this? He would rather write to them about their common salvation, but he, sing, he, he says it's necessary to write about this uh, contending for the faith. You know, as someone who, uh, myself, who's a bit more conflict avoidant, uh, I'd really really rather not contend for the faith Uh, I'd I'd much rather just live and let live. Like, why can't we just, you know, believe and let others believe what they want to? Why does there have to be this contention? Well, first of all, if there's a struggle over the truth, as he's saying there is, that implies that there's uh, someone trying to take it or to change it. We see Jude acknowledge this in verse four where he says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These people that Jude refers to as creeping in and perverting the grace of God, these are the ones who are attempting to change, to twist, to replace the truth with something else. There were people bringing in false teaching and lies right into the church in Jude's time, and it's no different now. In Jude's days, there were many people already very early on in the church, in the history of the church, uh, trying to twist the gospel with uh, heresies like Gnosticism, which basically means physical equals bad and spiritual equals good. Uh, There's other people... Uh, whom Paul calls Judaizers who tried to make some Jewish rituals and traditions necessary for salvation. And there are a whole bunch of other things as well, false teaching that add to the gospel or take away from it. And today, there are also many, many ideologies that are essentially trying to do the same thing, vying for our attention and ever so subtly, uh, you know, taking our attention off of gospel truth or completely replacing it all secular and religious worldviews that are outside of the gospel in some way or another attempt to water down or change or manipulate or replace the truth. And so to put it strongly, truth is under attack. It always has been and it always will be until Christ returns. And so for now as the church, we have a collective responsibility to stand up for what we know is is right and true, to guard the truth to contend for the faith that we have been taught and to spread truth around the globe. So again, we ask, why? Why is it so important that Jude needs to write about this uh, urgent matter of contending for the faith? And it's because the difference between truth and lies is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. The difference between truth and lies is the difference between eternal life and and eternal an eternal death, Jesus himself says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. It's the difference between life and death, and so people, uh, there are people that are trying to promote ideologies and worldviews and, and ways of life that will eventually lead to death. Among them is our government. Recently, uh, Bill C-4 was approved, which um, you all probably know about by now. It explicitly calls a biblical view of sexuality a myth and states that sex is assigned at birth. These are ideological statements that are now in the criminal code, and they are false. And it's not just our government. I see it all over Instagram, and uh, I don't have TikTok, but I'm assuming it's all over there as well, and every other social media platform and the news. You know, I will get ads. I got ads this week as I was writing the sermon about Uh, finding your inner truth through this like multiple choice quiz or something. And and I have people that I went to Bible college with that I love dearly that are posting stuff about deconstructing their Bibles and their faith. It's all over the place and it's concerning and it's heartbreaking. And so we need to contend for the faith. We need to stand for the truth because there are people on the other side of biblical truth, have already made the first and second and third and fourth moves. But first, in order to contend for the truth, to contend for the faith, we need to know what the truth is. If you're a Christian, you should be able to clearly and succinctly articulate the gospel and what it means to be saved. You should be reading your Bible and studying it as much as you possibly have time for so that you can grow in your ability to discern false teaching. If these are th- areas in in your Christian walk that you uh, feel a bit inadequate in, uh, I'd encourage you to partner up with someone in your small group, your community group, or uh, come talk to me, and this is an area that we need to grow in and be always attempting to grow in. And we should also be growing in our ability to talk to people about the gospel. you know this is this is one of the things that really excites me about our how to study your Bible classes um, that are happening tonight. Everything, absolutely everything that we see and hear and read about should be evaluated against Scripture. We need to be learning how to properly interpret and apply the Bible in our lives. And so tonight the class is on uh, using Bible study tools both inside and outside the text um, to help us study our Bible. I'd highly recommend uh, that you try to be there tonight if you can. Um, even if you haven't been to any other of the classes so far, uh, we won't kick you out. We won't turn you away. I'm sure you will uh, gain something from it. Learning how to study our Bibles for ourselves is so important. It allows us to be certain of, of what we see and hear, uh, making sure that it lines up with what the Bible says. And even now as I'm preaching, I, I really hope that you're discerning and evaluating what I'm saying against what you know to be true. And so it is essential that we stand for truth because it's a matter of life and death. It's essential that we stand for truth because there are people that have already made the first move for it. And finally, in verse 4, it's essential that we stand for truth because Jesus Christ is our only Master and Lord. There are a lot of reasons why this, this struggle for truth is so important. But really, what it all boils down to is the fact that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Master. It's a matter of obedience, of following his commands and his will for our lives. Jesus plainly tells us many times throughout his earthly ministry to watch out for false teachers. In Mark 13, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. If Jesus Christ is truly our Lord, we will obey what he asks us to do, even when it's difficult, even if it costs us our reputations and our jobs and finances. He is our master, he is our Lord, and so we have to obey him by contending for the faith. In the rest of... Uh, The passage we're studying this morning from verses 5 to 16 will give, uh, Jude gives us warnings and examples of uh, what happens to those who teach and believe lies. So let's move on and read verses 5 to 7. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. In this section, Jude uses three historical examples, Uh, to show what happens to people who teach and believe lies. The first is in verse 5. He says, uh, Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, as a quick side note, Jesus is in the Old Testament, and Jude affirms that here. Um, Jesus, who saved his people out of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who don't believe. This is referring to the spies that are sent to Canaan and come back and do not trust in him, and they die. They die. You know, these people had just come out of uh, Egypt. They'd been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They'd followed this pillar of cloud and fire through the Red Sea. Um, and they've already forgotten what God has done. And so the spies who didn't trust God and fear the Canaanites were destroyed. In and, and verses six and seven, uh, he says, angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, he has kept an eternal change. And what Judah is referring to here is in Genesis 6, uh, verses 1 to 4, which is a weird story in and of itself, but it deals basically with angels who sinned. He links this story to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, both dealing with sexual sin and, and rejecting the authority of the Lord. And, and, and the examples of the spies and of the sin of the angels and of Sodom and Gomorrah Sorry, just the spies and the sin of the angels show us that the previous service to God does not grant us a free pass to sin later. You know, the gospel is not a works-based sort of morality bank that we get to bank up good deeds and cash them out when uh, we need to pay for the bad ones. Although the spies had likely been good Israelites up to that point and the angels had been good messengers, their sins don't get a free pass and they're judged for their unbelief. Moving on in in 8 to 13, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are the hidden reefs or blemishes at your love feasts, and they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. In verse 8, we see uh, false teachers, first of all, don't have anything foundational to support their teaching on. They rely on their dreams, Jude says. Basically, they can make up whatever they want to. Have you heard someone say, or maybe you've said this, um, I probably have before too, but God told me to. You know, if, if someone has ever said that to you, or if you've ever said that, you better be prepared to back that up with scripture. We're all flawed people and we make mistakes, but relying on our dreams and Our feelings of what God is telling us can be a slippery slope if we're not fact-checking it against Scripture. God has already told us what his will is for our lives, what he wants us to do in the Bible, and so we have to be in line with it first and foremost. False teachers also defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme all of these sins. Essentially, what they're doing is they're placing our wills, our wants, our desires above the Lord's. And so defiling the flesh, uh, in other words, basically just leave, means to live immorally. They defy authority, uh, specifically the authority of Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture by twisting it to say whatever they want to and they blaspheme by trying to make themselves like God. By, be, by being that authority in his place. Now hypothetically, uh, you know, when we're reading this, it might seem easy to uh, identify false teachers, but it's it's really difficult to do that in real life, and uh, in in the past number of year, years, we've seen many, many examples of extremely well-known and successful Bible teachers who have been caught uh, in sin. You know, we have the recent example of Bruxy Cavy, who is a former pastor in Oakville, just you know, 40 minutes away. There's been concerns about his teaching and his theology for uh, quite some time and just recently he was caught in scandal. False teaching goes hand in hand with an immoral lifestyle because if we can reject the authority of scripture in our doctrine, we can just as easily reject its authority over how we should live. It's, a, it's tremendously sad. And it's a sobering reminder that is unfortunately very close to home. Immorality, blasphemy, the rejection of the authority of Scripture are all kissing cousins. And we need to be watchful of these things in our own lives. And those we trust and trust us to teach the Bible. Moving on in verse 9, we come across a kind of a weird illustration of the archangel Michael contending over the body of Moses with the devil. And there's um, some backstory that goes into this with some extra biblical uh, text that you can ask me about later. But for now, um, the point of this example, what he's trying to say, is that while Michael is contending with the devil, he is... Uh, so humble that he doesn't uh, condemn the devil by his own words, but instead tells him that the Lord will rebuke him. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So what does this mean for us? Does this mean that we can never call out false teaching and lies? No. What it means that is that Michael is allowing the Lord to condemn the devil. And so for us, we should allow Scripture to be the basis upon which we call out false teachers. It's the difference between saying, you're a false teacher because I disagree with you, and saying, you're a false teacher because Scripture disagrees with you. The difference is subtle, but important. There are a lot of areas in our doctrine that we can find disagreement with, while still acknowledging that there's latitude in Scripture to allow for legitimate differences of opinion. Uh, just for an example, one of those is baptism. There are a lot of views on baptism and how you should do it. Should you be fully immersed? Should you be sprinkled? Should you be uh, a baby? Should you be a believer? You know, with humility, we can say that uh, we can disagree with someone's view on baptism. while admitting that Scripture doesn't explicitly condemn uh, any particular, or th- that particular view. And so let's allow the Lord through his word to bring conviction and correction, not basing it on our own opinions uh, and convictions, but on on scripture. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Verses 10 to 16. um, Let's read that one more time. But these people blaspheme all that they, they do not know. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are the hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that The ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. To sum it all up, in verses 10 to 16, uh, Jude says that false teachers are destroyed. They die, they're brought to shame, they're condemned to the gloom of utter darkness forever. False teaching brings judgment. And this is exactly what we're talking about when we say that the difference between truth and lies is the difference between life and death. There is only one truth. One way that we can be saved and it's by believing that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and died the death that we deserve. In his death our sin traded places with his righteousness. He took on the full weight of our sin and died. And was buried for three days and rose again, ascended to heaven in salvation Just like our sin was put on him, his righteousness is put on us. And God looks at us and instead of seeing a sinner, he sees Christ and declares us righteous. And because of that, we are freed from sin to live righteously for the sake of Christ and for his church. That is the gospel and that is the only way that we can be saved. Anything short of that or other than that is hellfire. When we are declared righteous, we get to live forever with God. That is why the truth matters so, so much. It matters more than anything else in the world. Truth is the difference between life and death, and so it is essential that we stand for it. And so what do we do with all this? You know, this has been a heavy passage of Scripture with a lot of Judgment and death and condemnation. Do we leave here feeling kind of bad about ourselves and the world? I hope not. First of all, if you're not a Christian, I really hope that uh, you're taking what Jude says here seriously. We're not talking about this stuff to uh, make anyone feel bad or to reinforce uh, the hellfire and brimstone stereotype that some Christians... Our narrow minded Bible thumpers, we're talking about this today because I want you to know that what you choose to believe about the world and about right and wrong and about what happens afterwards matters. And it matters not just because um, it matters because it's not just a choice of what makes us happy or content or comforted, what makes us feel good. It's because it's a choice between everlasting and joy and peace or everlasting agony and sorrow. This is a message that we all need to take seriously and evaluate whether or not what we believe and how we live in this short life is worth a million, million, billion years in eternity. And so all of, all of what Jude says here in verses 3 to 16, I would ask that you just at least give it a chance and think through it. Take it seriously. This is an important uh, choice that we all have to make. Secondly, Christians, uh, what do we do with all of this? Well, number one, I would say that we have to commit ourselves to Bible study and to prayer. I've already mentioned our How to Study Your Bible class that's happening tonight We need to make sure that we know the truth and that we are biblically literate. We know how to read and study our Bibles well to evaluate everything that we see and hear at work, on the news, on social media, and at sermons at church against the Word of God. Get in the Word. Know it. Be discerning so that we don't fall into the trap of false teaching or believing false teaching. You know, there are very smart people. teach the bible in a way that seems right but it is ultimately not and so be shrewd be wise be discerning and the best way to do that is to read and study our bibles as much as possible next commit yourself to the local church become a member get in a community group make church friends have people around you to keep you accountable the godly li- to godly living and sound doctrine. None of us are perfect and we all make mistakes. We're all capable of, of slipping into incorrect ways of thinking um, and belief. And so we need the safety net of the church to show us our blind spots. I hope that if I've said anything unbiblical here this morning, that somebody would come up to me and point that out. You know, more often than not, false teaching and false beliefs aren't coming from a place of... of uh, you know, calculated maliciousness, uh, but from very well-meaning people who just want what's best. And so it's not like all of this only comes from uh, just ill intent, but we're all capable of, of believing and spreading things that are wrong. And so get plugged into the church, whether that's here at HGC or another gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church that values your spiritual health and your Bible. Another small thing that um, I would say is not as important as these other applications, but I found very helpful, that's a good sidekick to Bible study and to church, um, is to just commit yourself to being a student of church history. And uh, I'll admit this is kind of a hobby horse of mine right now because I'm in a church history class and I really like it. Um, but why does this help? Well, when we study church history, we see the many men and women who have gone before us and dedicated their lives to sound doctrine, we see uh, what we believe about the Bible and about God has been tested through time by 2,000 years of Christianity. If we're ever in a place where we find ourselves being the first ones to discover something new about the Bible, uh, chances are that we're wrong. Church history is so rich with stories of people who have literally died for the doctrines that we affirm to be true. And on the flip side, we also uh, historically see false teaching. Um, people who got things wrong. I mentioned Gnosticism and, and Judaizers at the beginning of this sermon, which was uh, you know, some of the first heresies to really gain any momentum in the church. Gnosticism is still alive and well today, although in a different name and different forms. There are a lot of ways in which we you know, somehow believe that the spiritual realm is, is somehow uh, perfect and that uh, the physical realm is inherently wrong. Now, if that were true, the new heavens and the new earth wouldn't be physical. If that were true, Jesus Christ wouldn't have physically manifest himself and come down to earth as a man to live in our world. And so just like sound doctrine is historically testified to, false teaching isn't anything new. And by studying church history, we are blessed with the gift of hindsight uh, and seeing how it turned out. And then we get to apply the lessons of the past to now. So yeah, church history can be an amazing tool in our belts in determining whether something is true or not. Although I cannot stress enough that it is not a standalone method. Um, We still need the Bible and our churches um, that safety net of other believers to uh, help us discern. And finally, I would say, um, if nothing else, this is motivation to commit ourselves to evangelizing like crazy. If, if we truly believe that this truth that we we affirm is a matter of life and death, we should be sharing the gospel with people as much as we can. You know, this is far more important than people thinking that we're weird or annoying. You know, we live in Canada, and at least for right now, there are no repercussions for sharing the gospel except you know, maybe putting our reputations on the line, we should be boldly taking a stand for truth. And some of us, uh, you know, for some of us that will come more naturally, for others uh, maybe not so much. But the gospel is worth getting out of our comfort zones and talking to people about it. We live in an age where there are so many avenues that we can use to communicate the gospel through social media and the internet. I would still say that nothing beats in-person conversation with people. You know, whether that's as, you know, random as just uh, doing it while we stand in a way too long line at a Bath and Body Works candle sale, or I with a family member at an Easter get-together. Evangelize, share the gospel. It's the entire point of the Christian life to glorify God by fulfilling the Great Commission. So this passage, although it, was, uh, it is a heavy one to get through, it is so full of important truth to consider. Christians, take these things to heart. Commit to standing for truth in every way that you can. It will be hard, and it will get harder. But remember that you are not doing it alone. You are called, beloved, and kept for Jesus Christ, and there is nothing that can stand in his way. He will give you everything you need to live boldly for his glory, and that is our hope in this life. So, again, I just want to say if you've never heard this stuff before, if you have questions about what we've talked about this morning, please come talk to me. I'd love to have a conversation about what this passage says. Everything that Jude has written uh, is written out of love and concern, not out of spite, not out of guilt tripping. You are deeply loved by the Lord. And so I'd like to conclude uh, by reading a prayer that I found helpful from uh, the Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers by Arthur Bennett. So would you bow your heads with me as I pray? O Lord, I bless you that the issue of the battle between yourself and Satan has never been uncertain and it will end in victory. Calvary broke the dragon's head, and I contend with a vanquished foe, who with all his subtlety and strength has already been overcome. When I feel the serpent at my heel, may I remember him whose heel was bruised, but who when bruised broke the devil's head, my soul with inward joy extols the mighty conqueror. Heal me of any wounds received in the great conflict. If I have gathered defilement, if my faith has suffered damage, if my hope is less than bright, if my love is not fervent, if some creature comfort occupies my heart, if my soul sinks under the pressure of the fight, O you whose every promise is balm, every touch life draw near to your weary warrior, refresh me that I may rise again to wage the strife And never tire until my enemy is trodden down. Give me such fellowship with you that I may defy Satan, unbelief, the flesh, the world, with delight that comes not from a creature and which a creature cannot mar. Give me a drought of the eternal fountain that lies in your immutable, everlasting love and decree. Then shall my hand never weaken, my feet never stumble. My sword never rest, my shield never rust, my helmet never shatter, my breastplate never fall, as my strength rests in the power of your might. Father God, we rest in the truths of your word, knowing that it is perfect and holy. Lord, you are perfect and holy, and you sustain us through all things. Would you give us strength and comfort through the words of Jude 3 to 16? Would you allow us to put all of our hope in you, knowing that anything that this world has to offer compares uh, pales in comparison to what we receive in the next life. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen.